Hey everyone, it's Jeff, cutting in before the uh, opening of theme music to uh, let you know what you're listening to. Aunt Beth and I decided to give ourselves a little bit of a break during the holidays by uh, not uh, giving ourselves a full uh, load of uh, episodes to record. So, But we wanted to make sure you had something to listen to every week, so we decided to re-release one of our most cherished episodes. So that's what you're about to listen to now. This is the Jeopardy episode that was originally released back in December of 2019, December 8th to be exactly. And that was uh, an episode that featured our very first guest uh, with a bit of an asterisk there. I'll, I'll explain in a minute. Uh, So our guest that episode was uh, my friend and Jeopardy contestant, Stephen Grade. And uh, he he talked about his experience on the show, and uh, Aunt Beth and I, and Stephen as well, all talked about our experiences watching Jeopardy throughout the years. Oh, and that asterisk explanation. So uh, Stephen was the first guest on a full episode, but the, the episode prior was a Thanksgiving check-in with family episode. So, um, I believe my cousin Wesley was on that. Or, no, actually, I was uh, that that one. I was like going around at uh, Thanksgiving at my talking to my aunts and uncles and cousins and whoever was around and just getting messages from everyone. So, Stephen was the first guest who was there throughout the whole recording session, as it were. So, anyway. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, the Jeopardy episode, and I picked this. We picked this one out as a good one to re-release because it's arriving on your podcast feeds on January third, which is the day before the final week of Alex Trebek's final episodes begin airing. His last episode that he aired, that he uh, hosted before he passed away, is set to air on January eighth, Friday, January eighth. So uh, we figured people would be in a mood to check out Jeopardy content. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's what you've got going for here. here. And I asked Aunt Beth and Stephen if they had any messages they wanted me to share. And Aunt Beth said uh, she'd like me to mention that she misses Alex. She said, I miss you, Alex. And she's finding rather, it rather difficult to think of anyone else hosting Jeopardy. Uh, we'll, we'll find out soon how that will go. I, I imagine it will feel surreal for quite a while. And Stephen, he uh, provided us with a nice long message. And he's, here's what he had to say. The knowledge that Alex was sick and that we'd be dealing with this sad news sooner or later didn't make it any easier to hear. I think that's because it's so hard to imagine the absence of an icon like that, someone who has been part of the fabric of our shared culture for so long. Every day for almost 40 years, millions of people would invite Alex into their homes and every day he'd be there to entertain and educate. Probably shared more dinners with him than anybody except maybe my parents, and I know I'm not alone in that. I don't think you can really measure the impact that Alex had. There's no telling how many people out there were inspired to pursue their love of knowledge by watching him on Jeopardy, or who learned some cool new fact that introduced them to their new favorite thing or field of study. And it goes beyond just things like facts. 
There was a moment on a show the week before Alex's passing where a contestant told a story about learning to speak English by watching Jeopardy with his grandfather. Uh, I believe this is me cutting in. This is me, Jeff, cutting in on Stephen's message. I believe he's referring to uh, Bert Tacker, who won uh, an episode air back in uh, December. That was like, I think, just a couple days before Alex passed away. Uh, now back to Steven's message. The, that's the kind of effect Alex had on people. You could see it in the outpouring of support that came when he first announced his diagnosis or after Drew's answer in the Tournament of Champions went viral or in the tributes and memories that have been pouring out of so many people from so many walks of life as Alex's final episodes have been airing. Alex crossed barriers between people in a way that doesn't often happen these days I think that's the greatest tribute that could be paid to them. Oh, yeah. Lovely tribute from Stephen. Lovely tributes coming in from all corners of the world in the days since Alex passed away. And I'd like to also mention that uh, I'm recording this intro on January 1st, and I just did uh, an annual wrap-up that I do where I, uh, I keep a dream journal and I keep track of all the times people have appeared in my dreams over the course of the year. And I was not surprised to discover that among celebrities, Alex was the highest entrant in 2019. He appeared in nine dreams in nine of my dreams in the past year. I have lots of Jeopardy dreams, so I imagine I'll still be seeing Alex in my dreams, even though I won't be seeing him on my TV as much as I have in the past decades. So, all right, I'll uh, let you, leave you to it. Either you go ahead and re-listen to this episode or listen to it for the first time. And uh, Aunt Beth and I'll be back in the coming weeks with uh, some new episodes. We've got some uh, plenty of uh, entertainment cooking for you. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of That's Entertainment. I am, as always, Jeffrey Malone, uh, pop culture maven. And uh, with me, of course, live from Hampton, Maine, is my Aunt Beth Woods. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And uh, it's a very special episode of uh, That's Entertainment today because we have our first uh guest ever with us and that is uh live from atlanta georgia stephen grade how are you today stephen i'm doing well jeff thank you so much for having me on i didn't realize i was your first guest i'm even more honored than i already was (laughs) well um glad to hear it i hope that uh that doesn't put too much uh pressure on you (laughs) no i'm I'm used to dealing with pressure by now (laughs) good um, as you may have guessed um, from the first minute uh, or so of listening to this episode or by reading the, the title of the episode, um, our topic today is Jeopardy, and we have on the show because he was a 
semifinalist in this year's Tournament of Champions. Uh, so, uh, for those of you who don't know what Jeopardy is, and even for those of you who do know, here's a, a little information about that. This is Jeopardy! Amidst the wreckage of the 1950s quiz show scandals, media mogul Merv Griffin's wife, Julianne, hit upon an idea. What if we gave contestants the answers and they had to provide the questions? This was born Jeopardy, which premiered on NBC in 1964 with host Art Fleming. That version lasted until 1979. Then in 1984, Weird Al Yankovic released the song I Lost on Jeopardy. That same year, a daily syndicated version of Jeopardy premiered, hosted by Alex Trebek. Cut ahead to 35 years later, and that version is still going strong today. And that is what we will be talking about. And um, I already mentioned that Stephen is a, a Jeopardy veteran, but we also have another uh, game show veteran uh, here with us today. And uh, that is um, Aunt Beth, who won uh, $32,000 back in um, 2000, I believe, on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Oh, yes. I didn't know you were going to bring that up. Thank you. <laughs> I had no idea. Congratulations, Aunt Beth. Thank you. I wanted I was wanted to congratulate you, too. But, yeah, that <laughs> was back, back in the um, Regis days. It was quite exciting. Uh, I was trying. I actually made sure I got that info correct. You are on the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire wiki. You have a, a page there. And just to confirm how uh, what year you are on. I have a page? There's um, <laughs> uh, so you know Wikipedia, right? Mm-hmm. Well, individual shows have their own wikis. Um, that are just, they're like their own individual Wikipedias just about that show. So Who Wants to Be a Millionaire has, like, I guess every contestant who's ever been there indexed oh. on it. Okay. I'll have um, to look that up. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, since there is so much to cover about this topic, let's jump right into it. Is that... Uh, Sound good to the two of you? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, our first section, oh, I forgot to do the breakdown of um, the main uh, premise of the show, of uh, our podcast, that is. Uh, on each episode of That's Entertainment, we discuss a, co a topic according to the three Fs. First, favorite, and forever. So our first section, appropriately enough, is first, in which we will be discussing our first memories of watching Jeopardy. And Aunt Beth, since you were the only one alive back when the <laughs> Fleming version aired, I'll let you uh, kick it off in this section. Since I'm the old one here. Yeah, well, um, I don't remember the exact date, but I know from probably close to when it started, we, our family watched it religiously. Um, but that at the time it was on 
um, during the day at noon. And mm -hmm. so we used to come home from, um, I can remember walking home from school at lunchtime and we'd watch, Je we'd probably miss maybe the first five minutes and we'd watch Jeopardy. And then there was another game show called Who, What and Where right after that. And we'd watch that probably till about five of and then had it back out. And um, so I would have been in, that would have been about third grade for me. So my brother would have been in sixth grade. So he, he would have still been in elementary school too. So we would have watched it then. And then oh, yeah, after for that, I guess that, that brother is uh, my dad. Jeff's um, dad, Bob, yes. Right, who also appeared on Jeopardy um, back in 1990, I believe. Yes, we are a very game-oriented oh, wow. family. <laughs> so, um, oh, very accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess we must have only been able to watch it, you know, regularly in the summer or whenever we were home from school or when, when we came home at lunch. Um, but that was, you know, I just remember that. I also remember that we always would buy the board game edition. There were many different editions and we played that with friends and family all the time, which was really fun. And my other memory was that Art Fleming was not very, I don't know what the word is. He was a bit rude. Like he, uh -huh. <laughs> he, he just wasn't smooth with the, with the uh, contestants. You know, if they get things wrong, it was almost like he was, I, I just, I don't know. We, none of us really liked him. It'd be fun to, for you guys to watch some old episodes, just to check it out. Um, yeah, I think some I've watched a little bit on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I think some episodes, Episodes have like been lost permanently because just the tapes were uh, like back in the '60s. Networks just taped over old episodes. Okay. But there, there are there is some footage on YouTube, I believe. Yeah, it would be fun to see. And that's when the the uh, questions were worth what 25. I think they started at 25, 50, yeah. 75, 100. And what did it did it go? I can't even remember, but we uh, certainly a lot less than they are today. So, mm -hmm. okay, that was so. That's my memory. Well, and then the other thing, uh, other part of this section to ask is: so when did um, it has it since then been a regular part of your viewing schedule? Um, well, then I now it's been a lot more spor sporadic. Um, mm -hmm. I don't watch it like you guys every single night. I always watch the tournaments, and um, I just I'm not always um, home. That, well, not that I'm out all the time, but I don't always think about it. So I used to watch it probably a lot more when I was younger. Now I have just haven't watched it as much. Yeah, that's. that's um, seems to be a story with a lot of Jeopardy viewers. Like at a certain stage of their lives, they watched it every day religiously, and then sometimes they they go in and out. And some people yeah, and it's more fun to watch to with other people. Like if I'm at, mm -hmm. whenever I'm at your house, I like to watch it because everybody's kind of playing along. So right, um, I'd be more apt to put it on 
you know, at someone else's house. But, um, yeah, so I try to, if I think about it, I'll put it on. I know mm -hmm. you've got, you watch it religiously. I do. Yes. <laughs> um, so we'll go ahead and move on to Stephen for the, the same question, but I also wanted to make sure I um, introduced you with some of your other stats. Uh, in addition to being a tournament, tournament of champion semifinalist, you were a five-day winner. Um, I believe your run started in March and went into April of this year. Yes, I, w I was the last week of March and the first week of April. So I had the good fortune of airing up against the uh, Sweet 16 and the, Elite and the Elite 8 on a couple of my games. Right. So every everyone um, had to decide if they wanted to watch me or the NCAA basketball tournament. Oh, okay. <laughs> Luckily, well, I'll usually, my choice is watch Jeopardy! Because then I'm missing the beginnings of games as opposed to the end of them. So it, That's it's true. Not... At least I wasn't up against a buzzer beater. Right. Uh, and then you were also the breaker of the four-day curse. Uh, <laughs> yes, I was. Stretch, um, for where there were uh, some four-day winners, but it had been a while since uh, the most recent five-day winner. I looked it up and I believe the last five day winner before you was alan dunn back in october of last year yes alan put a, a hefty curse on the studio set before uh, before i got there i think it was something like five or six four day winners between the two of us it had been something like the third longest stretch without somebody winning five games in a row in the 35 year wow. history of the show with alex trebek as host and I just had the good fortune of, you know, being there when I did and getting on a good run. So I've got that little note to put on my resume. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, okay, so uh, same question. When? Uh, what are your earliest memories of watching Jeopardy? And when uh, did it become a regular part of your viewing schedule, if in fact it did? Oh, it did. And it's uh, it's similar to Aunt Beth's story. Growing up, it was just always appointment viewing for me uh, in in the Atlanta market. Jeopardy's always come on, at least as long as I can remember, at 730 in the evening. So I would sit down with my family and have dinner and then we'd move over to the couch and we'd start yelling out answers at the television. Uh, and we did that, you know, going back as long as I can remember. Honestly, my first real memory of of actually watching an episode, weirdly enough, was the uh, Rock and Roll Jeopardy that used to air on VH1 with Jeff Probst as the host. Um, I I can remember sitting around, uh, we had some friends over for dinner that night, and we were, or that day, our friends over to our house that day, and we were just watching, you know, kind of a marathon of it on VH1, and I'm sitting there at, you know, 10 or 12 years old or so, and getting all these questions right about bands that were popular before I was ever born, uh, stuff that stuff that my parents didn't even know, and they were fans of these bands. And I just remember people looking at me and being like, you know, Stephen, how did you know this? Yeah. Uh, and it was it was from you know like pop up video on VH1, or it was from those uh, those like compilation CDs that they used to have infomercials for of you know the greatest '80s new wave one hit wonders and stuff like that. <laughs> And I would just see these commercials and these things would kind of get stuck in my brain. And that was kind of the first inkling that I had that like I had a good memory for weird facts like that, that I could see something a time or two and it would just stick in there. And as yeah. you know, I kept learning, you know, seeing more facts, you know, walking around through the world and, you know, reading more books and 
studying more things, like all these things just kind of kept getting notched into my brain. And I, you know, I'd sit there and watch Jeopardy and I'd, I'd keep doing better and better and better as the years went by. Um, but it all, it all had its start, you know, just sitting on the couch from a very young age, watching it after dinner and then, you know, figuring out that, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm doing better at this than I should do. Maybe this is something I should, you know, entertain doing one of these days. Yeah. Wow. Right. It is interesting how people, uh, some certain people seem to be able to hold that trivia. Well, it's not always trivia. I mean, it's knowledge, but mm-hmm. keep that in their brains better than other people. It is. And, and it's funny that you said that, uh, Beth. That's something that they tell us when we get there, that they don't view Jeopardy as a trivia game. They view it as a knowledge game because they feel like they're testing you, you know, for the most part on, you know, facts on canonical things yeah. like history yeah. and classical music, you know, there'll be some current popular culture or some, you know, things like wordplay categories where they're just kind of having fun with it. But for the most part, they really try to stick to, you know, like the, the academic categories. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, some folks, some folks just have that brain where, you know, something can get lodged in there and they've got a little neuron in their head that is, you know, the exclusive property of this random fact that right. they saw once. And, you know, it's forever. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, and it's it's just there. It's a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. You, you kind of made me think of something when you were talking about knowing all the the band facts of, of bands that were before your time, which makes sense to me because I think our generation, millennial generation, people born in the '80s and '90s, were the first generation to really have. An eclectic form of pop culture, where the movies, TV, and music that had been around in the decades before we were born was starting to become more easily accessible, um, as opposed to just going away and not really being heard from again. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd never really thought of it that way. But we had, you know, MTV and we had VH1 and we had Blockbuster Video and we've got all these different ways that, you know, we can, you know, HBO or whatever other movie channels you subscribe to. We've got all of these ways that we could access the pop culture that, you know, previous generations that our parents had, you know, grown up loving. Um, I was fortunate enough that my dad, you know, my dad and my mom made a point to kind of expose me to stuff that was part of an earlier generation you know when i was like riding in the car with them we would listen to classic rock radio or different classic rock live albums that my dad had they would take me to uh, the fox theater here in atlanta to see different musicals or plays that were coming through town um they they both you know loved movies they raised me on the classics they encouraged me to you know go out and explore things that i was interested in Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we had, we had that option where previous, uh, the pop culture of an earlier time could be our pop culture too. Yeah. That, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Cause I guess I didn't have that. I mean, I, the earliest thing I remember in 1972, they started an oldies station, which sounds so funny but out of New York city and they started playing a few songs from the six or songs from the sixties, which, you know, I wouldn't probably know better from hearing them in the seventies than in the sixties, but we didn't have yeah, what you guys are really exposed to, to all that now. I, I didn't have that. Well, now the oldies stations are playing 
songs from the 70s and 80s. Yes, <laughs> they're old. Um, Stephen, when ahead. did you? Oh, sorry. I was just. When did you try out for Jeopardy? I had I had my first and I guess only in person audition in May of 2018. Okay. Uh, I. I had started taking the online test once they launched the online test. So I'd probably taken it, I don't know, five or six times, um, you know, kind of on a whim, just thinking it was something fun to do. And if I end up getting a call back, great. And if I not, and if not, no harm done, you know, I got to spend a half an hour doing 50 Jeopardy questions. Um, But with, you know, the ability for maybe if I get lucky, something pretty cool to come from it. Uh, And I took it, you know, those five or six different times. Never heard back, never really thought much of it. And then uh, I took the, uh, it was either late 2017 or early 2018, uh, took it again and finally got a call back. And that was kind of the start of this uh, this wow. year of trivia that I'm just now wrapping up. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, I'll go ahead and um, provide my answer to this section, which uh, certainly is a, a similar in origin story to... Um, the two of you were just like um, the adults in my house uh, had Jeopardy on. It was a it aired at seven o'clock, still does at seven o'clock in the Philadelphia area. Um, and my dad was a, a big was a devoted Jeopardy watcher, as was his mom, who's also Amphet's mom, uh, yeah. my my nanny Ellie. Um, and I'd say she was probably the biggest. Uh, Jeopardy fan in our family. Uh, it was understood that you did not call her That's uh, right. between seven and seven. <laughs> That's right. She did love it. Yeah. Um, and so, as long as I was home at seven o'clock, it was un- Jeopardy was unquestionably on. And when I, as soon as I was old enough to have uh some tv remote responsibilities i would be the one turning it on if that fell to me um and um wpvi which is the philadelphia abc affiliate you used to be able to get that on fm radio um so if i happen to be in the car at seven o'clock on some weekday i would listen to it there um, but then eventually, um, eventually, uh, around, I want to say in 2012, uh, we, my family finally got our first DVR. And at that point, well, that guaranteed that I would never be able to miss an episode. Um, if okay. I, you know, if I were out and even if I were out until 1am, I would just turn on Jeopardy once I got home in that case. Yeah. So you never miss it. Exactly. Um, and yeah, so I guess I'll, we'll go ahead and move on to the next section, which is the, the favorite section where we'll discuss our uh, favorite contestants of all time. And uh, I guess we'll go ahead and keep the same order. So, Aunt Beth, who are your one or two favorite contestants? Well, it's hard because, like I said, I hadn't been watching it as religiously. And, you know, I started when it was when there were some exciting times back when um, 
Ken Jennings was on. I remember that I watched it every night. And then back when James was on. Um, and I really did like James a lot. He was a little quirky, but I found that once he lost, I really was missing him and was <laughs> not watching it as much. So I guess he probably is one of my favorites. And then Stephen Grade, I put him. <laughs> I enjoyed well, thank you very much. And then just because of this most recent um, tournament, I, I think everybody kind of fell in love with Drew because uh -huh. uh -huh. he was just a sweetheart. So, um, but yeah, I'm not going back very far. So those were, uh, you know, I guess I'm sticking to James for favorite contestant. Okay. I'll be sure to tell him that you said so. Okay. <laughs> Are you in touch with him? Yeah, we all of us in the Tournament of Champions have a, a group chat that we're in on on Facebook. Oh, nice. Messenger, and it is it is constantly hopping. We are always, you know, just chatting right along or posting jokes. That's great. Ourselves, making sure that we have a way to stay in touch, even yeah. though we've already filmed the tournament. Oh, that's wonderful. So, and then, well, you had also asked about like favorite moment or status moment, and um, I don't know if you want to first do that after or um you can go ahead if uh, well same as far as uh being recent and speaking of drew was when he i mean what before that went viral you know when he his question i don't even remember what the final jeopardy was but he had no idea and he wrote down what is we love you alex drew you're smiling i like that Let's take a look at your response. Did you come up with the right one? No? What is We Love You Out? That's very kind of you. Thank you. Costs you 1995. You're left with five bucks. Okay. And when we were watching that and and Alex got so choked up, um, that was quite a moment, I thought. And then the saddest moment, which I guess they talk about as one of the saddest moments in Jeopardy history was the kids tournament. Do you uh -huh. guys remember? It was the Thomas Hurley, the um, the answer was the Emancipation Proclamation, mm -hmm. and he spelled it. I think he spelled it Emancipation. Right. And, yeah, and so they didn't accept it, and oh my, it just made me so upset for him. And it also brought up the question to me, like. Are they very consistent with that as far as spelling errors? Because no. I feel like time, I don't know. I feel like times that I've seen it that they have accepted things that aren't spelled correctly or there are, you know, sometimes people don't pronounce things right. Sometimes they do. I, so I don't know how consistent they are with that. But I just felt really bad for that, the, that kid. I mean, it actually wasn't. I think he put in one extra letter or something. It wasn't spelled that that off. So I don't right. know what you guys think about that as far as um, how you know strict they are with spelling and pronunciation and things like that. The way that they try to do it on those is as long as you don't add an extra syllable. So if you if you mix up a couple of letters or if you spell it phonetically. 
they're, they'll try to be lenient on that. But if your misspelling changes the pronunciation of the word, then wow. that's when they'll get you. So but I, re- I remember that episode and the way they explained it afterwards was because he added that extra T that changed it from emancipation to emancipation. And because there was that extra letter or two in there, it made the word not uh, what the word was supposed to be. So it, it can be harsh in situations like yeah, that. Yeah. But they, they at least aim to be consistent with, you know, they'll allow for a misspelling. Um, I think in, in one of my games in the Tournament of Champions, uh, somebody misspelled a word in Final Jeopardy. But because it could still, if you pronounced it the way they wrote it, it didn't change the pronunciation of the word. Uh, they accepted it. Interesting. Okay. Did the, did the um, producers run through those rules um, at the start of the game to the to you guys? They do. They uh, when you get there to start taping, there's probably an hour to an hour and a half of orientation before you even get out on the set to start rehearsal. That is all going over the rules, going over the procedures, going over how the buzzer works, going over how Final Jeopardy works, um, all of that. And one of the things, you know, there's plenty of time to ask questions if you need more detail, but one of the things they go over is uh, spelling and pronunciation. Uh, So they try to make it clear going in, you know, here's what we'll accept and here's what we won't, because um, at commercial breaks, you can, you know, you can challenge an answer if you thought you were ruled uh, incorrect when your answer was actually correct. You know, just the other night, there were four times when the judges reversed a ruling. Yeah, I I did see that night. Yeah, some of those might have been that the judges caught themselves, which will sometimes happen. But sometimes if you think that they made a mistake, you can ask them to review it or see if there's an acceptable alternate answer uh, at a commercial break. Mm. Uh, But when it comes to Final Jeopardy, that it's not as easy because once the game's over, the game's over. Uh, They can't go back and start things up again. You know, on a rare occasion, you'll see somebody get invited back uh, who lost in a game because uh, they were adversely affected by an incorrect ruling. Uh, But for the most part, uh, you know, Final Jeopardy is going to be what Final Jeopardy is, and there's not much of a chance to get them to to overturn a ruling. Um, So that's why they try to make it very clear, you know, if you have to spell it phonetically, spell it phonetically, but just know that if you add an extra syllable or an extra letter, it could it could end up ruling you wrong. I mean, I, I almost did that on one of my final jeopardies. I had to scribble something out because I wasn't sure if I was spelling it right. And I didn't want to risk um, having added an extra letter or transposed a letter that would change an answer just by mistake. Uh, so I just, instead of going by first name, last name, I just scratched it out and went last name only just to avoid, you know, the chance of me making a mistake that would cost me, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Well, yeah, wow. That would not be good. Mm. No. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So, um, Beth, unless you had any more. Nope. That favorite... was. I was done with that. So. Okay. Then we'll move on to Stephen and his uh, favorite thoughts. Yeah. Well, I mean, my favorite contestants have been the ones that kind of changed the way that the game is played. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you're if you're talking about people who kind of upend what Jeopardy is expected to be. Uh, that goes back to Chuck Forrest. Uh, he was the mm-hmm. one who uh, did what's called the Forrest Bounce, which is what you know you saw all of us doing in the Tournament of Champions, what everybody was doing in the uh, All-Star Games earlier this year, which is bouncing from category to category instead of just playing all the way through one category at a time uh, as a way to try and keep your opponents off balance, 
uh, to give yourself a little bit of an extra advantage mm -hmm. and ideally to find the daily doubles uh, before anybody else can. Was um, he was the first uh, one to do that? Yeah, he was, uh, I don't, he might, I don't know if he was the very first, but he was the one who was successful with it and kind of popularized it. And uh, when so was it, that? Uh, uh, let me pull up when Chuck was. I think he was uh, season two. Oh, wow. He's been, it's been a, a while since Chuck was on. Uh, Chuck was, a, yeah, 1985. Oh, okay. Uh, he's, Long time so ago. So he, he won five games, which was the max that you could win back then. Right. Yeah. And he, uh, he set the uh, all-time cash records two days in a row, um, which, you know, I guess was easier to do since it was back in, uh, in season two. But he was the one that kind of, uh, he was the one that that strategy got named after. Okay. Uh, so it, it helps you to confuse your com opponents because they expect you to stay in one category and you're going to a different one. If you've been practicing for it, it your brain might be a little bit more nimble, a little bit more able to go from category to category quickly, whereas it might take somebody else an extra second or two to adjust to it, which is can be a huge, huge advantage when it comes down to hundreds of a second on the buzzer. Uh, so he's kind of the, uh, the progenitor of, you know, of of James, of Arthur Chu, of Austin Rogers, of all of us, I mean, I did it in my games, of all of us who are trying to play the game a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's always fun. It's, it's you know, watching uh, since we taped the Tournament of Champions has been a very different experience for me because I was out there, you know, basically playing on the Jeopardy Autobahn, you know, everybody going very, very quickly, going from category to category, bouncing around, uh, looking for daily doubles. And now it's kind of like I'm driving in a school zone. Uh, just isn't to say that it's easier, but it's just very, very different from what I've been, you know, training myself to do and what I was, you know, watching old episodes. I was watching James's episodes. I was watching the All-Star Games. I just wanted to get in that mindset of having to go back and forth from category to category. And in a weird way, it's kind of jarring for me now uh, watching and seeing people kind of playing the traditional Jeopardy way. Uh, yeah. it's not, it's not that it's better or worse, but I'd gotten myself so used to doing the forest bounce and to kind of living with that in my head for seven months while I was studying that it's, it's taken me a minute to readjust here now that I'm just a fan again. Um, but yeah, Chuck, Chuck was the one that did that. You know, I mentioned, you know, I loved watching Arthur's games. Um, I know that he was kind of controversial amongst the Jeopardy fan base, but he was, you know, he was taking that strategy, that hunt for daily double, that go back and forth from category to category, really making some hay with it. Uh, Roger Craig uh, was a fantastic player. You know, his, uh, if we're talking about favorite moments, his back-to-back uh, -back true daily doubles in the Tournament of Champions finals, where he quadrupled his score and essentially put the tournament away uh, in two questions is wow. is my is just kind of one of the the most you know wow I can't believe that you you know had the guts to go through with that moments that that I can remember seeing on the show especially in that situation when was uh, what year was that tournament I believe Roger was 2011 uh, yes yeah. 2011 was yeah. that tournament uh, novels 1200 answer Daily double. You have a $1,600 lead over Tom. I'll bet it all. Oh, all right. Here is the clue for you in novels. Her Agnes Grey appeared in 1847 under the pseudonym Acton Bell. Note the initials. Who is Anne Bronte? Anne Bronte, the least known of the three Bronte sisters. 18,000 unique total. Languages, 1,600. 
Yeah. The other Daily Double is there. <laughs> I'll bet it all. Yeah. <laughs> all right, here is the clue. Although Dutch is the official language, Sranantongo is spoken by most people in this South American country. What is Suriname? Suriname is right, $36,000. Oh boy, making it really tough for Tom and Buddy. Uh, that, that one was on Netflix here recently, actually, while I was studying for the Tournament of Champions. So I watched that tournament the whole way through. And I made sure to rewind that part a couple of times just yeah. so I could, you know, bask in the, in the glory of such, such an amazing, amazing move. Wow. Um, but, I think that, uh, yeah, that I, I always, a lot of Jeopardy viewers lists of their favorite moments. Oh, for sure. Just because, you know, like he was so calm about it. He was so cool. Like if you watch it, he almost looks like excited that he gets to do it. And then, of course, that led to the hysterical moment in the uh, Battle of the Decades a few years later where he was up against uh, Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter and found a daily double. And you can hear one of them lean over to him and go, bet it all, just kind of like, you know, joking around with him. And then he actually did it. Uh, I believe he got that daily double wrong, but it was it was just funny to see that his uh, I'll bet it all moment has uh, had become so ingrained that even, you know, players the level of, uh, of Ken and Brad were kind of uh, kind of ribbing him about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, those were those were always the players that I found myself drawn to uh, were the ones that were willing to try something a little different. You know, you'll sometimes see players who do that and maybe they don't have the knowledge to back it up or maybe they're up against somebody who can do it just as well as they can and it doesn't always work out. But when you get that perfect combination of a player who's quick on the buzzer, who's prepared to play the game a little bit differently uh, and they're able to catch folks off guard, they can they can make for some really, really entertaining games. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, and oh, before I get into my favorites, Stephen, did you have any any other thoughts about your your favorites? Uh, any other favorite stuff? Let me see. I pulled up a couple of things here. Oh well, if 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 you're going for a comedy moments on Jeopardy, it's hard to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh-huh. Uh, not not exactly the guy you expect when you think of uh, you know um, something amusing to happen on a on a game show. But uh, Kareem messing up uh, his own quote from Airplane and uh, confusing G-rated movies for X-rated movies. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty tough to top. Uh, Kareem's gonna Kareem's a, a Hall of Famer, but he's a Jeopardy Hall of Famer for a, a very very different reason. Well, I think there there was also another moment with Kareem where uh, there was a clue about this UCLA basketball player, and I think Kareem just and on Celebrity Jeopardy they'll have some very easy clues thrown in there, and um, but not like. Not say not, your own name. Not easy. as. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, I think he saw a UCLA basketball player and then didn't read the rest of the clue. So he rings <laughs> and says himself, says, Who is Kareem Abdul Jabbar? Um, I believe the actual answer was. Um, was it. Bill Walton. That's right, yeah. It was Bill Walton. <laughs> yep. um, which Kareem should have known easily if he had just been paying attention for the rest of the clue. Yep. Uh, I went to UCLA for four hundred dollars. You're gonna love it. Tell your old man to drag this '70s UCLA and Trailblazer Center and Lanier up and down the court for forty-eight minutes. Kareem, who is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? No. 
You're the one who delivered the line, but it was about Bill Walton. Oh. <laughs> Embarrassing moments on Jeopardy. Take a gander, though, Kareem. You're in command of the board. I went to UCLA almost. <laughs> yes, all right. But that, that'll get you. I mean, there, there was one category in the Tournament of Champions last month that was all about, like, keywords that are usually associated on Jeopardy with a certain answer. Mm -hmm. uh, but they but they were a different answer. And that one was diabolical. If I had gotten that in one of my games, I'd have been in huge trouble because I spent all of my time studying those Jeopardy keywords, those Pavlovs, we call them. So that when I see something like March King, I think John Philip Sousa and I stop mm -hmm. reading instead of reading the rest of the clue to see that it's Edward Elgar um. or uh, Duke of Braintree being uh, John Adams instead of John Hancock. Um, so I can completely understand Kareem seeing UCLA Center and being, hey, that's me. Uh, yeah. Because they, they caught me the same way. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'll go ahead and um, add my thoughts to my favorites. And yeah, I, I'll have to um, second, um, Stephen, your uh, sentiment towards players who um, revolutionized the game. Um, what I did in, in coming up with my favorites, I sort of split it in between who, what I favored when I was younger and what I, I favored um, since entering my 20s or so. Um, and I'd say when I was uh, young in the 90s, what I mainly favored um, in a Jeopardy contestants, contestant was a unique personality. And in a game like Jeopardy, where you mostly have introverted nerds as your contestant, <laughs> yep. anyone, and I do mean that with plenty of fondness. Yes, <laughs> it's a compliment. Right. But any, if you show any sort of personality, it sticks out. Um, and it certainly stuck out in the case of Bob Harris, who won five games back in 1997, um, was a finalist in the 98 tournament of champions uh he was this uh balding fellow usually stood hunched over um but like if he got a few questions wrong but then followed it up with a one thousand dollar clue that back to got him back into the game he would cheer and get the audience into it you know much <laughs> more so than uh just about any contestant ever would. And then he went on to write a, a memoir entitled Prisoner of Trebekistan. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is kind of about his, what was going on in his life as he was preparing for Jeopardy and then um, what, what it was like being on the show and how his life changed uh, once he became a Jeopardy champion. Um, mm. So yeah, those were the, the type of players I... Um, really admired in my younger days. And I would say it was around the time I was in college and right out of college when I was really, um, really became a big booster for the disruptors. So it was the perfect time for me to see Roger Craig uh, in 2011, a year after I um, graduated, graduated college um, and in his second game, he won $77,000, which at the time, in the pre-James Holtzauer era, was the uh, highest one-day total of all time. 
And yeah, I mean, Stephen, as you've already said, his strategy of bouncing around the board, fishing for daily doubles, betting as big as possible, um, really sh- showed me and anyone else watching how much you can maximize your Jeopardy winnings in you know just a half an hour. Yeah. You know, he wasn't the first to employ those strategies, but I think he was the one who sort of harmonized them better than anyone else up to that point. Yeah, yeah. As this year has shown us, there's, you know, if you employ those strategies the right way, there's definitely a way to use them the right way, and there's definitely a way to, you know, maximize, uh, you know, the, the potential of these, you know, 22 to 24 minutes that you've got. Um, there's there's a lot of money out there to be made, and it's just a matter of kind of being confident enough and, will, you know, willing to take those risks, and you can make them pay off in an enormous, enormous way. Yeah, you can. Um, and, well, getting back to the comedy... Um, so I was going to mention as my all-time favorite moment, Roger's double, daily double, but Stephen, you already got to that. Um, so one other moment I wanted to mention, which I think is a little more obscure, um, but it's really stuck with me. It was, I think I'm getting this contestant correct. It was uh, Warren Uswi or Uswi. His last name is spelled U-S-U-I. I was a Japanese-American fellow who won three games back in 2003. Um, He's a bit of an oddball. Um, During the contestant interviews, the contestant before him was telling a story about how he and his wife adopted a stray dog, and then after a few weeks, they realized it was actually a coyote. Um, That got a laugh from the audience. Then Alex is walking over to Warren um, for him to tell his story. But before Alex can introduce that, Warren said, we found out our dog was a rhino. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Alex, one of the few times where Alex had no idea how to respond (laughs) to what a contestant just said. Oh, that's funny. I was I was watching I saw this pop back up on my Twitter feed a few, a few days ago. It was a contestant who told a story. She was in the middle podium and she told a story about a pet goat that she had that ate a box uh, that ate a bag of Quickcrete. Um, and it, the story made Alex laugh so hard that he didn't even he wasn't even able to get to the third interview. He just walked <laughs> right past the third person and went back to his podium. Uh, yeah, the, if you if you can get a good genuine laugh out of Alex when you're telling a story, that that's worth you know five wins right there. That's right. Uh, that's I, I got a, I got a good laugh out of Alex after one of my stories, and that's that's going to be my best memory out of being on the on the show. It's not going to be the money. It's not going to be the tournament. It's going to be like I made Alex Trebek actually laugh at one of my stories. Like, what talk was about your achievement? What was the story? Uh, I think that was the story about uh, me almost bumping, uh, knocking over Hank Aaron my first day on oh, the job yes. working for the Atlanta Braves. I read that. Um, uh, yeah. he, he, you know, he kind of kept pressing me on it, and I had, a, you know, a couple of just like a little witty repartee with Alex, and I managed to get him to, you know, crack a smile and throw me a chuckle. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's not every day you hear a story about almost, you know, knocking Hank Aaron over as you're exiting the bathroom at work. Uh, so I guess that just the uh, the ridiculous of the situation helped me to stand out a little bit. Yeah. He's into sports and almost knocked down Hank Aaron. So as I was running down the hall to get to the bathroom, his door came open and I had to almost slide into second base to avoid knocking over the home run king. Everything worked out. Everything right. worked out great. He's still oh. spry. All right. Well, I think um, before we move on to the final section, the forever section, um, Aunt Beth, you and I... Uh, came up with a trivia question for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stephen, you can feel free to participate in these as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if you're ready, Aunt Beth, go ahead. Okay, well, I actually did a couple, but I guess my the best one is, do you know what the most common category is on uh, Jeopardy? Um, hmm. In turn, is does it have a, a specific name? Like it's not like just like broadly geography or history. No, it has a name, and it says it's reappeared 114 times. Okay, I'm gonna guess potpourri. No, Stephen, do you have a guess? Uh, I'll take a shot. Is it word origins? No. See, I would have no idea either. It's before and after. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Those are. I. I. I'm usually not very good at the wordplay categories, but I really do like before and after and before, during and after. Yeah, I like those. It's you have to be quick on those, though. Really thinking. And then I just found this interesting. This they said. Um. Oh, I don't know if you know this. If if you've competed on Jeopardy you cannot compete on Wheel of Fortune and vice versa. That was a trivia thing listed because they're considered like sister shows or something. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, they're, uh, they're filmed next to each other on the Sony lot. They share staff. They share yeah. producers. Uh, we even, like, we did some of our promo work out on the Wheel of Fortune stage huh. uh, while we were out there for the Tournament of Champions. So, yeah, they are, they're, uh, they're pretty closely linked. Yeah. Okay, well, that was mine. What it, how about yours, Jeff? Okay, so this is um, going to test your memory a bit. Okay. Um, so, uh, back in July of 2018, you were vacationing in Pennsylvania. Um, you're staying at my parents' house. Uh-huh. And that, that Friday the 13th, you and my dad, you, me, and my dad watched Jeopardy together. And there was a rather strange occurrence on Final Jeopardy. Uh, a contestant named Vincent Valenzuela provided a an answer that we could not understand. Yes. So I'm going to read you that uh, the Final Jeopardy clue from that day. Okay. And see if you can remember what Vincent's incorrect answer was okay. and what the actual correct answer was which he had original initially written but then crossed out okay so the uh the category was modern language and the clue was this slang term for an environmentalist is literally true of groups that will that used passive resistance versus deforestation as in india in 1973 so is the real answer tree hugger? 
Right. That, yeah, okay. that was the, the correct answer. And I'm trying, I just, I remember the instance exactly because the three of us looked at each other were like, what is he talking about? But I can't remember what he wrote. Oh, God, that, it was so weird. You'll have to tell me. I can't I'll remember. You I, I, I do remember what he wrote. Do you uh, remember? I, I remember this incident. I do. But uh, you, Jeff, you go ahead and give a hint. I don't want to play spoiler. Okay. Um, so the monitor was slightly cut off. So the while Alex read the clue correctly, or read it as it was supposed to be by saying this slang term, the monitor cut off the T, so it said his slang term. Oh, so that's what he saw? Right, so he wrote down a person's name. It wasn't like the Dalai Lama or something, was it? No. <laughs> okay, I can't remember. Stephen, do you, you think you know it? I do, uh, because this is a name that came up a bunch in my studying uh, for the tournament champions. He wrote down Carl Sagan. That's correct. And uh, that, that's, that's one of those instances that I mentioned where Vincent was actually invited back later that year because, oh, wow. uh, because there was a mistake on Final Jeopardy, and they knew that he didn't get it wrong because of something he did. He got it wrong because of a problem on the okay. show's side. Yeah. So they had him come back later on in the year and give him another chance to play oh, wow. again since he was disadvantaged. Did anybody now, else read it incorrectly, though? I don't believe so. I believe the other two contestants both got it right. Huh. Um, well, I mean, they went by what they heard Alex say. And, oh, okay. And um, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe their vision just... Maybe they didn't see how it was appearing on the monitor. Maybe they yeah. just like filled in that T because they knew they heard Alex say it, and that's what made the most sense to hear. Yep. That yeah, yeah, so and, that, and that's something that that's something they that tell us in orientation is that sometimes there is a technical problem that maybe you're supposed to see a video and you can't. Maybe you're supposed to see a picture and you can't. Oh. Um, maybe there's a word cut off. But if you if you listen to what Alex says and you can piece it out that way go ahead and ring in um that was something that happened last week i think that uh, the a picture of tom hanks came up but the signal lights that tell you you're allowed to buzz in never came on so everybody just sat there waiting for them and, it, and no one got it right because they waited oh. too long so everybody watching at home is like how do these three people not know who tom hanks is yeah uh well the, an the answer is there was a problem with the show not with them um, but nobody thought to just, you know, give it a try and try to buzz in um, just in case there had been a problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah How did you re know, Jeff, that when did you find out that he was reading the monitor wrong? Um, I think they explained it on the episode that he was invited back on. Oh, OK. Yeah, because yeah. I, yeah. I, I think they might have said something at the end of that episode, like there was a little talking head with Alex that they had filmed afterwards. Um, and then they mentioned it again when Vincent came back just to say, like, hey, for those of you at home who saw, you know, that this may have looked incorrect. Here's what happened. We're going to invite Vincent back later on this season. Oh, okay. I think they posted that on the Jeopardy website. Uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, because I remember yeah, yeah, I knew I, I, they had shown it, shown it at the end of the episode. We wouldn't have been confused, but I know yeah. we were like, 
we were puzzling over it for. Yeah, I remember seeing something that was like Alex kind of walking us through it. But you're right, that might have been the uh, the website or YouTube or something like that. Um. Okay, so let's move on to the final section, the forever section, where we provide our current thoughts on today's topic. So we're going to go ahead and focus on the most recent Tournament of Champions, which were held this past November, which Steven competed on, made it to the semifinals, where he went up against the eventual champion, James Holtzauer, who won uh, is it 33 games in his original run. He either won 32 and lost in 33 or won 33 and lost in 34. I think, yeah, I think it was 132. Let's let's look it up quick. For the yeah, sake 32. of accuracy. I wrote down 32 from somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Yes, he won 32. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's the second most uh, regular games won all time. Uh, second only to Ken Jennings, and his total winnings of over $2 million is also second um, to only Ken Jennings, and he holds the record for um, single game winnings. In fact, I believe he holds the 13 highest totals. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we don't want to, we're not here to talk just about James. We're here to talk about. Um, all the contestants on uh, this year's Tournament of Champions. And I'd have to say, uh, this was a great tournament. And I think this entire decade has been spoiled with great uh, tournament of champ- tournaments of champions. I don't know if that's recency bias, I mean, just remembering them more. But um, I think these we've had great, uh, have had winners who are great all-time champions and they didn't get their. They didn't become the champions easily. They had some strong competition along the way. Uh, what would you guys say about that? You go first, Steven, because I didn't have a lot on this to um, contribute. Actually, since I, like I said, I haven't been watching as much lately. So, um. yeah, no problem. Uh, I I couldn't agree more, Jeff. Um, you know, when you look at the 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 caliber of player and the folks that have, you know, made the semifinals and finals and how the questions get so much more difficult and, and the scores that some folks are still able to put up despite that uh, it, you know, the tournament really is just another level of competition. And I think that the past few in particular have been especially strong. I mean, I don't, I don't want to brag, but I honestly think that ours was possibly the best tournament of champions that they've ever put on. Uh, just if you look at how kind of obscure and esoteric some of those boards were and, you know, Emma putting up the second highest final score of all time and still only coming in second, um, you know, the number of correct daily doubles, the number of correct final jeopardies. Uh, and then you add in the fact that, you know, we're not playing top down. We're, you know, upping the difficulty for ourselves by bouncing around and by hunting for daily doubles the way that we were. Um, there was a lot going on, and still, you saw some really, really strong scores uh, all throughout the tournament, but especially, you know, James and Emma going back and forth at it in that finals. Um, but even still, you know, Emma 
you know, she had a really, really tough challenge from Kyle in her semifinal match. Uh, Francoise came down to final jeopardy. All three of them were still in it. Um, you know, I, James had a runaway on me, but there was one question that if I, that I missed that if I had gotten right, um, ours would have come down to final jeopardy as well. Uh, so they were all really, really close matches, really, really close games throughout, just lots of fun to watch, lots of fun to be a part of. Uh, and from what I was reading, folks thinking that some pretty challenging material that we were covering. Um, I know that I'm biased, but I think that, uh, I think that we put on a great, great show with some pretty difficult categories. Yeah. No, it was really fun to watch. Really was. But, the, but even if you look back to the previous tournament of champions, you know, um, Buzzy and Austin and Allen, like they they did a fantastic job. You know, um, Roger Craig, uh, Alex Jacob, Ben Ingram, like we've had some really, really, you know, I mean, Ben Ingram coming out of nowhere to beat Julia Collins, who won 20 games, and Arthur Chu, who <laughs> people were, you know, he was kind of the proto James. People saying that he broke the game. Jeopardy will never be the same after people see the way that Arthur plays. Um, and, you know, I mean, Ben wasn't a shabby player in his own at all. I think he won eight or nine regular season games, but everybody was just overlooking him in the finals. And he comes along and he's like, no, I can I can hang with these two, you know, all time greats. And and he absolutely did. I mean, there's there's the tournament of champions. Alex said it at the top of the uh, at the top of the tournament this year. It's always, you know, a great show. It's always highly anticipated. Um, and you know, there's a reason for that. Like you can you can just tell that it's it's a different caliber of play. Yeah. Um, so I have a question, and the from mm -hmm. it's only once a year, right? The tournament of champions. Uh, it's gener There's no set time. It usually falls about once every two years. Um, oh, prior to ours, the most recent one had been November of 2017. Oh, okay. And so they pick the top um, 15. Is it? Yeah, it's uh, 15 people. Um, generally, they go by uh, how many games you won is the first thing they use to rank them. And then if you won the same number of games, how much money you won. Okay. So we had, um, you know, there were some four-game winners that didn't get in because the four-game winners who qualified had won more money than they did. Okay. So some don't, that's what I was curious. So not everybody's always going to make it then. Correct. Yeah, typically, so traditionally, if you won at least five games and you're guaranteed mm -hmm. entry. So like if it gets to a certain point where like if you somehow have a streak of 15 five game winners over just the course of um, let's see how many weeks would that be required to take? That would be 15 weeks. So mm -hmm. four months. Yeah. If you somehow had 15 five game winners over the course of five months, they'd be like, they might decide, okay, we'll have the next tournament of champions as soon as possible. So, okay, yeah, because I was going to say, so if there were more than f uh, 15 five-day champions, they'd have to do it, the, the tournament before got to be that many more. Yes, and it, there was I, there was one tournament I think where they had too many five game winners, and they just held two of them over for the next tournament. Okay, um, but it generally, you know that 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 I think has only happened once in the show's history. Usually, it takes them about two years to get what they feel is you know a full complement. Uh, that okay. gives you a couple of teachers tournament winners, which gets you automatic entry. Uh, gives you a college champion winner, yeah. uh, which gets you automatic entry, and then you know. Four and five game winners, they don't come along that often, especially mm -hmm. ours. We had that big, huge drought of uh, five between five yeah. game winners. 
Um, okay. But even still, it takes a while to get, you know, to get a good compliment, a solid number up in there. Yeah. Okay. And Jeff, what were you, did I interrupt you on your thoughts of the... Oh, um, well, one thing I want, I, it sparked with me when um, Stephen was talking was, um, yeah, so um, I think, you know, James ended up winning the tournament and I think most viewers figured he was the favorite and I would say he was just as strong as he was during his original run, but it really was clear that if one or if just one or two clues had gone differently, that it could have been a different result. Like, uh, you know, it came down to final jeopardy in the second day of the final. If, um, if James had gotten it wrong, uh, then Emma would have won. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, and yeah, James that, had missed you know, that, earlier in the tournament, like on um, the semifinal when you played against him, Stephen. Uh-huh. He got he did not know final, and how close was that? I I'm, I don't think you were too far off from being within half of his total. I think I was about four thousand off. Okay, um, and I had missed it, and I had missed a two thousand dollar clue earlier in the game. Uh, so if I get that one right, and it, it happened that he had gotten that one right and then found a daily double with the next choice, so that was a $6,000 swing plus, I think, $9,000 that he got from the daily double, so that was a $15,000 swing right there. Uh, so it really came down to that one clue at the beginning of Double Jeopardy, um, but even if I had just kind of stayed quiet and not buzzed in on that one, I, might, I would have had a chance at you know, making it not a runaway going into final. Um, yeah. I remember yeah, correctly... I, did you attempt an answer on final or did you just write a message? No, I just wrote a message. Uh, I had wanted to do that uh, my first time around, uh, but I kind of chickened out at the last second. I just wanted to write something to the folks at the show, thanking them for having me out. Uh, and I knew going into the tournament that if there was a situation where I was going to bet nothing in final jeopardy, that I was going to write something to them. Um so I didn't really spend time thinking about if I could get that final Jeopardy question right. Just glancing at it, I narrowed it down to... Th- they were, you needed to write two answers, and I narrowed it down to three. So I would have had, I guess, a 50-50 shot of just, you know, writing one down and then picking the other one. Um, but, you know, that's that's one thing that I don't have to lose sleep over now. I don't need mm-hmm. to worry, oh, I, I know I would have gotten it right. Like, I can say, I maybe would have gotten it right. I maybe wouldn't have. I really don't know. Uh, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, I mean, that just like what you said, Jeff, that just goes to speak to, you know, the quality of the competition. I mean, James was as on as he was in any of his other matches. And even with that, you know, you didn't see him getting 70, 80, 90,000 dollars in a game like people were able to uh, to keep it, you know, to the point where it like he just couldn't rack up those big totals where there were games that were in doubt going into final jeopardy. Um, you know, he missed, he missed that final jeopardy. He missed a couple of daily doubles in the finals. Uh, the, the level of, the level of competition goes up. The questions are going to be harder. It's going to be tougher on all of us. And even still, uh, there were folks that were hanging right in there with him. Yeah. Um, I want to take it back a bit. Um, cause for, don't know how many people realize this, but uh, James's first game was the day after your last game. Yes, it was. We okay. uh, we we were ships passing in the night. Oh, uh, wow. I, Back in April, I, did you I, meet him at all? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, we were, uh, you know, we met each other in the lobby of the hotel that day. Uh, we were in the green room together during orientation. We did rehearsal together. Uh, and then after that, I was out there on stage while he was uh, up in the stands. So once I got going, you know, for my second day of taping, I didn't really have a chance to see much of anybody other than the folks who, who were out there on stage with me. Um, so after, I believe your last game was on a Tuesday, I think. Uh, my last game was, was my last game was a Wednesday, okay. and then James started on that Thursday game. So uh, usually, um, I have this correct: uh, a week's worth of games are filmed over the course of one day. Yes, we do the uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday games in the morning. Then we have a break for lunch, and then come back and tape the Thursday, Friday games. So I was out there taping on a Monday and a Tuesday, I believe. Uh, yes, I started the day after the Super Bowl. So I taped uh, one game and then had lunch and then taped two more on that Monday and then came back Tuesday morning and taped three uh, three more right in a row. Wow. And then did you have the option yeah, uh, of sticking around and watching the the other two games that were shot that day? Uh, yeah, they'll they'll allow you to if you want to. Um, at that point, I was just so mentally and physically exhausted that I just wanted to grab some lunch and lay down in my hotel room. Yeah. Uh, because it's, you know, you really don't get, it's really, really different being out there. It's not just being on set and, you know, having the lights on you and being there, you know, standing in place for, you know, hours at a time while you're playing Jeopardy. But it's that you're playing three games of Jeopardy right in a row with, you know, maybe a five minute break between them. Uh, that's, that's not something that I had ever done before. I had never, you know, recorded episodes and watched them all in a row just to kind of prepare myself for, you know, what if I win three games or four games or five games? Uh, but boy, it does a number on your brain. I mean, I don't, by the time I was in my last game, I don't know if I could have strung a complete sentence together, let alone, let alone kept on playing any Jeopardy. <laughs> that's a lot. Wow. It really is. Yeah. It, it's a marathon like it is it is a mental marathon and, and and a physical one too you know it's it's not easy standing up for you know three hours in one place not moving around you know being on your feet wearing dress shoes which yeah. i don't like doing i find them very uncomfortable mm -hmm. um you know having to be so sharp on the buzzer have such quick reactions i mean it is it's it's a mental game for sure but it's also a surprisingly physical one um, well, that leads me into my uh, another question I wanted to ask, which was after your initial run. So you won five games. You mm -hmm. can be pretty sure that you're going to be in the TOC after that. Mm -hmm. um, when did you become aware of James's run? How did that affect your strategy leading into the TOC? And would you have adjusted your strategy in the same way or a similar way anyway? Um, I got wind of James's run, like they had started airing promos about, um, the next great Jeopardy champion, um, with, um, you know, just like you know quick, quick they, shots of people's faces. Right. When they started airing those promos, I knew that your run, your appearance was coming up uh -huh. and you hadn't appeared yet. I'm like, could it be that Steven's <laughs> the, the, the next great champion that they're promoting? <laughs> 77,000, 110,000, $2 million. 
Records are meant to be broken. Is it too soon to start making comparisons with Ken Jennings? <laughs> well, I mean, it was kind of fun to be a part of that. I was kind of, um, I was kind of Janet Lee and Psycho. Like I was their red herring because, uh, like, they had my face as part of that promo where they like showed like five or six people who were going to be on that in early April in quick succession. And, you know, people like saw me win five games and like, oh, my gosh, who's you know, what's this like? Is this the guy? And I'm sitting there thinking like, well, no, I don't think they're going to air a special promo just for me, yeah. uh, me and my five game win. Like they had already kind of run a, a four game curse promo the week before. So I figured that like that was that was my big moment in the sun that I was going to be the one to break that streak. And a four-day total of 92,000. Four-day total of 100. A four-day total of 87,000. Four-day total, 100,000. One. A four-day total of 93,301. Um, but I had um, I'd gotten a little kind of. Uh, I wasn't an official part of the like Jeopardy community online yet, but I was certainly like paying more attention to folks than I normally had been. And I had seen that there were rumblings of uh, somebody going on a, you know, a historic run. And I remembered James from my tape day and I saw his face in that promo. And I remembered, like, I didn't stick around to watch any of his games that first week, uh, which weren't record setting, but were certainly very impressive. Um, but I remembered in the green room, he had lots of questions about the buzzer, uh, like a whole lot of questions about the buzzer which to me either said he was very, very nervous about being on the show or he was so confident in his knowledge that he only thought he, the only thing he was worried about was the buzzer. Uh, so that, like, I was able to kind of put two and two together and be like, okay, I think that this is the one because I know it's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as, you know, watching him, um, watching his run and um, how it changed tournament prep, um, like I had my strategy, which it wasn't the, the one thing that I think is kind of a flaw in the all out daily double hunt strategy is that you might find the first daily double too soon uh, before you have enough money to really make it valuable. Uh, if you find that, like, uh, for example, in the game that James lost to Emma, his 33rd game, he found the first daily double on the very first clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe if he had and he ended up he ended up being um only a couple thousand behind Emma going into Final Jeopardy, I believe. So if he had had maybe 2,000 or 2,500 when he found that daily double, he might have had the lead going into Final. Uh, So I think that one of the things that it's important to do if you're going to employ that strategy is don't really start hunting for it until you've got at least $1,000. You do run the risk of somebody else finding it, but at that point, if you're not maximizing it for yourself, then you're still putting yourself at risk. So I was going to start hunting for the daily double eventually once I got to like maybe, you know, $1,500, $2,000 and see if I was able to, to fish it out of there. Uh, but seeing James play, you know, I think all of us knew that we were all going to have to play that style. Um, you know, all out daily double hunt, forest bounce, um, you know, try to try to get money on the board as quickly as we could and find that daily double as quickly as we could. So that changed my strategy a little bit. Like I was already uh, studying to be bouncing around the board. When I had my flashcards, I would mix them all up. So I'd be going from, you know, a science question to a literature question, to a U.S. president's question, to a world history question, to a pop culture, you know, without giving my, myself time to readjust. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was ready to do that. The only thing that it really affected on me was I knew that I was going to have to, you know, start from the bottom and start looking for those daily doubles as quickly as I could. Um, and I think that... I don't think that's a strategy that can work for everybody on the show, 
I think that, you know, if you put like the 15 of us who are out there on the tournament of champions, I think that if you're a tournament of champions caliber player, just playing top down, then you could probably make some hay, um, bouncing around the board. Like you've probably got the speed and the knowledge base and, you know, the, uh, the instant recall that you could make that work. Uh, but I think that it's important for everybody to play to their strengths as best as they can, you know, watching James's run, there were some people who started trying to imitate his style who obviously weren't comfortable with it, whether because they hadn't prepared for it or his uh, gameplay had caught them off guard or because they just didn't have the knowledge base to get those bottom row clues, you know, without kind of building up to it uh, with the uh, with the lower value clues. Uh, I think that it's important to play your game, whatever your game is. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough that I had practiced to be bouncing around the board and playing uh, playing from the bottom up. Um, so I was I was okay going in with that style. Um, but I don't think I, it's not something that I recommend to everybody. I think that, you know, you've got to be a pretty, you know, you've got to, you've got to be ready for it going in. And if you practice it and you don't feel comfortable with it, I would say, don't do it. Uh, if you practice it and you feel like you're able to, to do it, then by all means go for it. But, um, you know, I was in that situation where I had already kind of, I had done some bouncing around in my earlier games. Uh, and I'd had seven months to kind of prepare my mind to have to bounce around that quickly. Uh, so really the only change for me was, you know, uh, making sure that I tried to find those daily doubles as quick as I could. Of course, I didn't end up finding any daily doubles during either <laughs> of my tournament games, which, mm -hmm. you know, shot that plan all to hell. Uh, yeah. But it, at the very least, I can say that I was prepared to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and when you course, say you um, practiced, how do you, like, what types of questions, how do you get the... Um, questions to practice uh so i made about forty thousand flashcards. flash cards um, oh my there's, God. there's a, yeah it was a lot uh <laughs> it, it became it became practically a full-time job there as i started cramming at the end um but there's a website called j archive which collects literally every question that is asked on the show um they're they're incomplete in the earliest years of jeopardy but from i think like 2000 on they've got 100 percent every clue that's ever appeared on the show wow. um and you know and a ton of them from the 90s as well uh so i was able to go in there and search you know for keywords or you know like cities or authors or scientists or um books movies music songs <laughs> albums and see what did the show like to ask about that person, place, or thing. You know, what do they expect you to know about Shakespeare? Wow. What do they expect you to know about Hamlet? What do they expect you to know about uh, uh, the Great Gatsby or mm -hmm. um, of Mice and Men or for whom the bell tolls? Um, and you know, do that. You know, for an extensive number of people, places, and things. Um, so I used a flashcard app called Anki, uh, where I would, you know, create my flashcard on my computer, upload it to this app that I had on my phone. Um, and then I could organize it there based on categories. So I had, you know, an African history and geography category. I had an Asian and Oceania history and geography, uh, a literature category, a philosophy category, uh, you know, business and industry category and so on and so on. Um, so I would go through my flashcard decks, um, you know, introducing you know maybe 25 to 50 new flashcards a day uh, but spending most of my time reviewing old ones uh and then once i got to the point where i knew that i knew one i would move it out of its deck and into a deck that i called forest bounce practice so that was so that deck ended up with you know a smorgasbord of clues clues from every different category 
Um, so that way, when I got into the time to start reviewing that deck, I wasn't going to get five or six questions about, you know, Brazil in a row. I was going to get a question about Brazil and then a question about John Steinbeck and then a question oh. about, you know, Romania, um, mm-hmm. a question about souffles. And it was just going to go back and forth and back and forth. So that way I wasn't training myself just to get in, you know, an Asian history and geography mode. I was training myself to be ready to, at a moment's notice, uh, go from one type of category to the next, to the next, to the next. And after doing that for seven months, I was pretty comfortable that I wasn't going to get thrown off by bouncing from one category to the next. I was going to be able to change gears just as quick as we could change categories. Yeah. Wow. A lot of preparation. Oh, it sure was. I, <laughs> I, I wish I had more time. <laughs> as much as you did. You right. know, uh, everybody's got their own style. Um, you know, we were kind of comparing notes uh, back there in the green room, just like, hey, how did you do it? You know, did you use uh, handwritten flashcards? Did you use computerized ones? Um, you know, we had someone in the room who was uh, has a, uh, I think, a, a master's or a PhD in like educational psychology and development. So she had her own strategy. We had other people who were just kind of making notes like they used to back in college or high school. Uh, I had actually seen during the All-Star Games, uh, Ken Jennings was using this flashcard app uh, in one of his kind of behind-the-scenes vignettes that they did for those. So I figured if it was good enough for Ken Jennings, it would be good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was the way that I ended up doing it. But yeah, like everybody's got their own style. There's really no one-size-fits-all for, for that. There's no one-size-fits-all for anything on Jeopardy. No. There's no one-size-fits-all studying method. There's no one-size-fits-all buzzer strategy. There's no one-size-fits-all clue selection strategy. You just have to cater it to what fits you the best. And I knew that, you know, just re- like just reading like a big reference book or a textbook wasn't really going to allow me to get this sheer number of facts that I needed to stuck in my head. Uh, so I figured that like breaking them down to their simplest form, just, you know, flashcards, like, you know, three or four words, a sentence at most, uh, and just kind of drilling it into my head over and over and over until I was comfortable with it was the way that I needed to go. Wow. And it worked. I mean, I, I, in my training, I, I saw a huge, huge improvement over the course of my studying for the tournament. I mean, I, my biggest regret is that I didn't study this way the first time around because I know that I would have made more money. I know that I would have won more than five games. Um, you know, and you might have I mean, who knows? Uh, the next great champion. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, maybe maybe I would have knocked James off in his first game. I mean, I, I don't know um, because I didn't put in the work. So that's kind of that's the one big regret that I have to live with is that I didn't take it seriously enough the first time around. And I know that as well as I did that I still could have done better. And with getting, you know, being fortunate enough to be invited back for the tournament, I knew that I wanted to give studying my all just, you know, whether I won or whether I, you know, finished in the negatives in the quarterfinals, whatever I did, I wanted to know that I prepared as best as I could. Yeah. But you still have to think about, like, you can't drive yourself crazy. Look how well you did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's. Yeah, that is that is very true. And that's that's kind of something I've been working on is that, you know. Don't look at what you didn't do. Look at yeah. what you did do. Like yeah. I, I won five games. I made it to the. I know. Like, that was that was <laughs> that was my biggest goal when I went out there. Like I wrote down a list of goals as soon as they called me to tell me I was going to be on the show, 
And the biggest goal that I wrote down was win five games and make it to the tournament of champions. Yeah. And I did that. Like I did everything that I set out to do. So no, yeah. like I can always look back and think what if, but it's, I don't have, you know, it, that's not something to, to lose sleep over. Like I've got, yeah. I've got, I got a nice, nice size check in the mail from them. Yes. That'll help me uh, sleep, sleep well at night. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, um, we probably wrap it, wrap things up. Cause it's getting long. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was thinking that as well. So um, we'll <clears throat> we'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up. Uh, so to um, I'll give you Aunt Beth and you Stephen. Uh, if either of you have anything you'd like to promote, uh, you can go no, ahead. I'm just excited for the. So is it January seventh? Is the next tournament with Ken and James and what's the other guy? Um, Brad. 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 That's that should be fun. Yeah, that'll be on um, prime time on ABC starting uh, January seventh. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. But no, I don't have anything else for me to promote. Um, Stephen, uh, you have anything you'd like to throw out there? Uh, yeah, I do, and it goes back to something that Beth mentioned earlier on. Um, kind of in the in the wake of uh, Alex's uh, pancreatic cancer diagnosis, and uh, the fact that uh, Larry Martin, who was the 2018 Teachers Tournament champion on Jeopardy, um, he was going to be in this Tournament of Champions, but he uh, passed away from pancreatic oh, cancer no. earlier this year. Um, and following, you know, Drew's uh, "We Love You, Alex" answer, um, all of us in the Tournament of Champions, had, we had been wearing purple ribbons during the taping in honor of Alex and Larry, and mm-hmm. we all wanted to try and organize a fundraiser for pancreatic ke- uh, cancer research in their honor. Uh, so we've been working with the Lust Garden Foundation for pancreatic cancer research, and they've actually uh, put on a uh, Jeopardy-specific fundraiser where you can. Uh, we are, we're encouraging folks to watch an episode of the show. Uh, tally the number of correct answers that they give and donate $1 for each correct answer to the Lust Garden Foundation. Um, their website is uh, lustgarten, L-U-S-T-G-A-R-T-E-N.org. Uh, there's more information about it uh, pinned on my uh, on my Twitter feed, which is at ask underscore Stephen, uh, S-T-E-V-E-N. Uh, so for anybody listening, if you're a Jeopardy fan, if you're an Alex Trebek fan, if you've seen the SNL Celebrity Jeopardy parodies, um, whatever the case may be, we're encouraging you to uh, watch the show, uh, play along at home, and uh, donate a dollar uh, to the Lescarton Foundation uh, in honor of La- Alex and in memory of Larry. Fantastic. All right. I, so, yeah, I played so. along during the Tournament of Champions, and I'll, I think I'm going to play along again during the greatest of all time tournament yeah the uh the jeopardy specific one is going to be up through the uh, greatest of all time tournament uh we were uh we were very excited to learn about that the only one of us who knew what was happening was james and yeah uh, he kept a he kept a mum about that one but uh, i spoke to i've been working closely with the folks at the foundation and uh they've agreed to uh keep it open through uh the goat tournament uh just in case folks are watching and um you know we we kind of um you know catch fire again i mean you know Drew was on Ellen. Uh, we've raised, uh, talked oh, about yeah. uh, his answer in the fundraiser. We've raised almost $70,000 through it already. Wow. Um, so we're, uh, we're looking, hoping that uh, we can get another big boost here kind of on the, uh, on the heels of the uh, greatest of all time tournament and uh, hopefully raise enough money that we can make a little bit of a difference. Will they announce it on that? Like how do people 
hear about it besides, I mean, you just announced it on this, but. Yeah, uh, the, the folks, the Jeopardy social media folks have been great about helping us to promote it. Okay. Um, they've uh, been put, they put information about it on their Twitter feed, on their Facebook page. And then also, you know, when Drew's final Jeopardy response went so viral, it, um, it got a lot of eyes on us. So uh, us in the tournament, we were just looking at, you know, looking through the hashtags and looking through the Twitter mentions of folks talking about Alex or folks tweeting, we love you, Alex. Uh, and, you know, for any celebrities, any journalists, any, you know, people with large Twitter followings, companies, corporations, um, you know, news outlets. I ended up doing an interview with a, a local affiliate in Minneapolis, Minnesota, because they tweeted about it and I tweeted at them and they asked me on to a to talk about it. So just anybody who had any kind of a following who was, you know, showed that they were interested in Jeopardy, you know, folks who had been uh, on the show before for Celebrity Jeopardy or introducing categories or the subjects of clues, uh, we got in touch with them. We said, hey, like, will you just please help us amplify this and see, you know, hope, see if, uh, you know, you, you shoot your shot. And we got some, uh, we got some pretty big names, you know, that were out there kind of helping us spread the word. But even people I'd never heard of who have, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 Twitter followers. They were like, absolutely. I love Jeopardy. Like Alex is a hero of mine. Let me see if I can help you spread it. And you know, it's, it's been enough to raise $70,000 here so far, Perfect. Uh, just through, you know, small donations, you know, the yeah. Ellen show chipped in $25,000 and I, and James chipped in 8,000 on his own, but that leaves another, you know, thirty-five, thirty-seven $37,000 that were just people donating, you know, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks, like kind of that, that grassroots thing that it was, it was wonderful to, to see and to be a part of all that. I mean, it was, it was the most gratifying part of the whole tournament experience, honestly, just, uh, you know, I've kind of found this, this accidental calling that I never knew that I had, but now I'm in touch with the folks at the foundation on a regular basis. And we're trying to, you know, brainstorm new ways that we can raise more funds for them. And uh, it's been it's been just an, an unexpected pleasure and pri privilege to be able to get to do this work with them. I'll bet. I'll bet it is. Um, I'll make sure to add uh, a note about Les Garden in the episode description. Thank you very much. Um, and I'll quickly promote my stuff. I'm. Uh, you can read my thoughts on entertainment in general on my blog jmoney.com that's jmoney spelled j-m-u-n-n-e-y and um you can also follow me on twitter at jmoneymalone and please follow the that's entertainment on, on social media or at entertainment on twitter and that's entertainment on instagram and facebook and uh please rate review and subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you listen on if uh and beth i think we can go ahead and make this promise that if you do uh write a review we will we will read it on air okay um, if you <laughs> so, so if you're the, if you're the type of person who'd love to hear uh your thoughts read on a podcast uh go ahead and give us a review that's um, a good idea and yeah and what's that i just said that's a good idea um, and, uh, for all you Jeopardy fans out there, we already mentioned the greatest of all time tournament. Um, and the show airs regularly Monday through Fridays. It's syndicated. So it depends on where you live. Um, we, so check Jeopardy.com. That should tell you if, if you don't know already, um, we, 
Stephen mentioned that in the Atlanta area, it airs at 7.30, and I believe that's the same in the Bangor, Maine area. Yes. For uh, UAMP. Is it on ABC in Atlanta? Uh, it is on NBC here. Okay. Uh, they is, have, uh, the, uh, the Jeopardy website has a, a page where you can type in your zip code, and they'll show you your, uh, your network in time. So uh, Jeopardy.com, and uh, look for that tab. Uh, yes, exactly. And there are also uh, a selection of classic episodes currently up on Netflix and Hulu. Um, oh, yes, the, uh, the Buzzy Cohen collection. <laughs> Yeah, that, that one's his uh, his original run is currently up there. Um, so if if he was a favorite of yours or someone you love to hate, you can uh, <laughs> go and Buzzy, experience if you're listening, I love you. Those again. Um, Buzzy, if you're listening, I love you too. And um, I think uh, part of my affection for you is how much you resemble the skinny lawyer from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to tell him that you said that. <laughs> um, awesome. And, <laughs> and uh, Beth, I know we've been work, trying to work on a sign-off for you. Have you thought of anything? Oh, geez, I still haven't. I was just going to say, what is good night? <laughs> that sounds <laughs> we'll, like a we'll good go one with to that for now. For tonight. Maybe, yeah. Well. Uh, maybe we'll use it again because I, I mean, we all love Jeopardy so much. I can imagine we might want to do a second episode about it. Hey, if um, you do, you know who to call. Yeah. <laughs> we yes, we do. Um, we we can call you, and we can um, maybe we can get your entire text chain to contribute. Oh, I'm sure they would love it. Um, they are they are always happy to chat. Uh, good to hear. All right, well, um, until next time, uh, this has been a, another episode of That's Entertainment. And so, in summation, keep your remote handy and your eyes open.